1: Welcome to the show, the Wednesday afternoon show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and life questions and anything else on your heart. All you have to do is provide the phone call, 210-340-9585, that's 340-9585, if you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel mobile app. And as always, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, got some good questions today. We'd love your phone calls. Uh, Tonight here at Calvary Chapel, I have the privilege of teaching a wonderfully gracious and encouraging chapter. Genesis chapter 47. I absolutely love it, so I'm looking forward to tonight. I don't know if I'll get through the whole chapter. Paula is betting that I won't. I think she's probably right, but I'm going to do the best that I can. Uh, But if you need to be encouraged, you can go to calvarysa.com and watch it live stream, or we always have room on Wednesday nights, so you're welcome to join us uh, if you are in the area. Let me get to some questions that have been sent in while we await your phone calls. This first one comes from our email inbox from Ephraim. Ephraim. Pastor Ron, I'm a long-time listener. May God continue to bless your ministry. Thank you, Ephraim. Uh, In my weekly men's Bible study last week, and then parenthetically, he says, we live in Georgetown, Texas. We came across a lesson that left, left, left us a bit confused. Why does God speak contradictory prophecies through Jonah and Amos to Jeroboam? Through Jonah, God's favor is with you. Through uh, Amos, it's actually Amos. God's justice is against you. Can you explain? Um, Ephraim, yeah, I can explain. Uh, by the way, how you guys picked up on this, Jonah, in his book, uh, doesn't address uh, Jeroboam the second at all. Um, uh, there's just a very obscure passage in First uh, um, Kings chapter, I think it's 25, um, or chapter 14 it is, uh, in verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry. Let me let me start over. I'm looking through the wrong numbers. It's in Second Kings 14:25, and there, Ephron Jeroboam the second. Uh, was remember, he, God used even bad kings, and, and Jeroboam was a bad king. Uh, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of uh, Hamath, as far as the Dead Sea, and that's exactly what the word of the Lord said. So what uh, God was saying to Jeroboam was, uh, look, you're not done here, you will have success here, because this was part of God's plan. Now, Jonah never told Jeroboam that God's favor was with him, He just told him that he would restore the borders of Israel. I think perhaps the assumption in your Bible study is that this was meant as a blessing for Jeroboam when actually um, God, I'm certain, had a purpose in mind. The purpose he was uh, to preserve Israel, the northern kingdoms. So the prophecy was a description of what he would do. It was never an affirmation of his rule. And Jeroboam did not enjoy the blessings of God except as far as those blessings fit into the plan of God. So make no mistakes, uh, Ephraim. Jeroboam was not uh, a king that was approved by God or affirmed by God whatsoever. Again, that reference is Second Kings chapter 14, verse 25. Uh, that is the only mention we have at all. Of uh, Jonah addressing um, the people uh, in, in the Northern Kingdom. Interesting, good question. And uh, you know, it took me a long time to dig that up because I couldn't find where uh, Noah—I mean Jonah and Jeroboam II actually uh, had any interaction at all. I know that that uh, Jonah and uh, Amos um, prophesied during the time of his reign. Uh, so they were compatriots, whether they knew each other or not, we have no way of knowing. But I think that's the explanation. Thank you very, very, much. Thanks for listening. I appreciate it. Jeffrey asks, I know the Bible says Jesus is coming twice, but doesn't the rapture mean that he's coming three times? I'm unsure that there is a rapture at all. Jeffrey, the rapture of the church isn't a, a, a coming of Jesus to the earth. The Bible is coming. You're right. The Bible says Jesus is coming twice, has come once, and is coming again. Um, When he was born as an infant, of course, that was his incarnation. He's coming again, according to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, He will be coming again. By the way, we're going to be starting in the book of Revelation this Friday night Here at Calvary Chapel, Revelation chapter 1, probably going to do, I think, the first nine verses in the first study, uh, but I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, But the rapture of the church, he's not coming to the earth at all. Uh, We're going to be called up, snatched up, caught up to meet him in the air. And uh, that's where he'll meet us. He'll take us to be with him uh, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, we will be at the wedding banquet that we all so long for. Uh, but that doesn't mean Jesus is coming. Uh, Jesus says um, um, to his disciples as he's speaking about his, his death, he says, uh, "'Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me where I am.'" First Corinthians 15 says, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So he's not coming to the earth again. He's coming just one time uh, in the future, and that's when he comes to um, judge a Christ-rejecting world. So, Jeffrey, good question. Thank you very, very much. Uh, here is an anonymous question. Why can't we make up for our own sins by doing good things instead of depending on Jesus to do it for us. Two things, Anonymous. One, to get to heaven, you have to be perfect. And the fact that you acknowledge your own sins acknowledges that you're not perfect at all. So if you're not perfect and heaven requires perfect people, then we have to have a sacrifice for our sins who was perfect. And all of the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to this very thing. He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. And Anonymous, no matter what you try to do to make up for your sins, you can never wipe them out. You can never make them as though they never happened. Because Jesus died for our sins, we are justified just as if I'd never sinned is the way to remember that. We're justified, meaning that positionally we're perfect, And there will be no sin charges against us. I don't know why you would think, even for a moment, that you can make up for your sins. How can you make up for sin when you've hurt somebody, when you've broken their heart? How can you make up for your sin when you have sex with a man or woman? Your question doesn't say which you are. How can you make up for despising the body of somebody else? and mistreating them that way. How can you make that up? How can you make up talking about them badly? I mean, it's not like we can make it like it never happened because there's always going to be the imprint of sin. So Anonymous, just your question, I'm sure to you makes sense. It makes no sense at all because we all know that we can't do good deeds. We can't do penance. We can't say enough prayers, we can't say I'm sorry enough to make the sin go away. The problem is you don't really hate your sin, and God does. Loves you, that's why you sent Jesus. But Jesus who is perfect is willing to give you that perfection, and that is the requirement for heaven. You know, it's like a dress code. Imagine you're going to this formal ball and, and you decide you want to wear shorts and a T-shirt. And you get to the door and they say, Oh, I'm sorry, sir, you can't come in. Or, I'm sorry, ma'am, you can't come in because you you don't meet the dress code requirements. It wouldn't be enough to say, Well, I think I should be able to come and dress I am." That's the dress code requirement. Well, the requirement for heaven is being perfect. And only Jesus was. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Uh, William wants to know, Pastor on Wire, books like the Gospel of Thomas and Barnabas and Mary Magdalene, not considered Bible. You know, William, I've had this question uh, three times this week. Um, just sent in to me. So I kind of jumbled them all together and included Mary Magdalene because your question initially only included Thomas and Barnabas. Uh, the reason they're not considered the Bible is simple. God didn't write them. Uh, they're real historical books, the Gospel According to Thomas, um, uh, was not written by Thomas it contains factual errors uh, it contains contradictions with what we know is the preserved word of God the same thing is true in the gospel according to Barnabas and the gospel according to Mary Magdalene you know to wait minute, it wasn't too long ago and I can't remember exactly where it was but Paul and I were watching a movie about Mary Magdalene and it was based in her gospel account and it was so Awful, so wrong, uh, contains so many errors, and the focus was on her rather than jesus and uh, it was just complete heresy now it was a movie we don't expect movies to be doctrinally sound but but neither is the Gospel, according to Mary Magdalene, in the Bible to be considered Bible, there has to be no contradictions, no errors. Uh, It it has to be internally consistent with all of the other books in the Bible. And all of the um, accounts of Jesus' life and ministry uh, that are not included in our Bible contain those errors, those inconsistencies and irregularities. So that's why they're not considered Bible. Um, I don't even think, William, that they have much in the way of historical value. They might be interesting. Uh, But remember, you're reading stories written by men that are in contradistinction to the parallel stories written by God and preserved for us in the Word. So that's why they're not considered Bible. It's because they are not Bible. Larry says, if God knows everything that's going to happen, and this is my insert, he does, uh, how can we have free will? Well, God's knowledge, God's foreknowledge, Larry, is not causative. In fact, it's not like God says, well, I think Ron's going to do this, so I'm going to make him do this today. No, God simply, because he lives outside of time and space, because the end and the beginning are the same to him, he knows everything that we're going to do. It's like we look at history and we can we can view history and be confident that this happened, it happened this way, that's what the historical record tells us. Well, God has even a more accurate historical record, but he also has that same record into our future. God is the I am, not the I will be or, or I, um, I was, he's the I am. And so everything is in the present time from the perspective of God. So yes, he knows everything that's going to happen. Yes, we also have free will, and he knows the choice that we're going to make. You know, Larry, there are times when I challenge our church in in, uh, appropriate studies where I'm dealing with this issue. And I'll say, what does God know about the decision you're going to make right now? What does God know? Does God know you're going to surrender your life to him? Does God know you're going to repent of your sin? Or does God know that you're going to continue to harden your heart? You know, we like to make excuses for sin. The truth is, we all have a choice we're going to make that choice and god is going to know what that choice is again he doesn't cause you to make the choice that's not causative but he knows the choice you're going to make so never forget that he sees everything he knows everything and he knows even the mode of behind a question like this one here is an anonymous question i know god is faithful But I feel so much pressure to always be right and to live right. I'm trying my best, but seem always to fail. You know, Anonymous, this is a a problem so many of us, especially we who are men, because we're so prideful, because our hearts can get so hard. We we feel like we've got to be right. We've got to be self-sufficient. People depend on us, so we, we have to have the right answers. That's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. Our Bible says that God is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Paul also writes that he who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. He doesn't say you have to complete it or I have to complete it. God doesn't need me to take over. In fact, when I try to take over, I get in his way. So here's what you have to do. By faith, you have to depend on God's faithfulness. And really anonymous, if you understand what I'm trying to communicate to you, and I don't think I'm doing a very good job here, but I think if you really try to understand what I'm I'm saying, depending on God's faithfulness takes all the pressure away. I'm a proud, stupid man. And I know what it was like especially at the beginning of my walk, to try to always do the right thing. God, you're going to be so mad. I'm sorry I disappointed you. And then one day I realized, and this was just a revelation from the Holy Spirit to my heart, that He's the one who will take me to the end of my walk. I didn't have to be right. I just had to be sure my heart was right. And Anonymous, over the years all that pressure has been removed from me. Now there are times like everybody that I slip back into thinking, well, i got to do this right or that right. I, I'm a pastor of a fairly large church and um, I've got a lot of people who depend on my direction. There are times when the decisions that were made here at Calvary Chapel didn't look like they were the right decisions based on the, the circumstances or the appearances of things. And I remember just crying out to God just show me if I'm right show me if I'm wrong I'll repent I'll do anything but what God has proven to me over the years is that as long as my heart is right with him even when I make the wrong decisions God fixes it I don't have to have the perfect answer to Paula if she's struggling with something I'm her spiritual head but God loves her and he loves me And if my heart is right, God directs our steps. And he has saved me, Anonymous, from so many bad decisions. Bad decisions that I made with the right heart. Decisions a few times when I really believed it was God who was opening doors. And I can look back at those decisions now and realize that had, had, had we continued in that path, Calvary Chapel of San Antonio wouldn't even exist today. This radio program would have never made it to the air. And yet God, because my heart was right with him, protected me. And he protected the work. He protected the people here. So my point is, this takes away the pressure. God's faithfulness means you don't have to be right in your decisions. You just have to be right in your heart with God. And whenever I hear somebody say, I'm trying my best, I want you to know your best stinks. My best does too. So this isn't personal anonymous. But my best is horrible. And when I'm doing my best, I'm going to fail as well. So I stop trying and I try to die to myself every day. Maybe you can remember it that way. Stop trying and start dying and you're going to feel this big relief, this release of pressure and you're going to be able to take a deep breath and say, oh, thank you, Lord. Jesus said, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and you are, come to me and I will give you rest. His burden, his yoke, is easy and light. And the yoke that we put on ourselves, the burden we carry It's just too much for us. So here's what you do if you're married anonymous. Go to your wife or go to your husband and say, let's pray about these things. I can't deal with the pressure of making a decision. Let's see what God wants to do. Be in the Word together. If you're in the Word together, God will speak to your heart. Then he's the one that's responsible and not you. So, thank you very, very much. Here is a question from Patricia. I'm asking this for a friend. Is polyamorism a sin? Um, Patricia, polyamorism is a sin. It's sexual sin, it's fornication. Um, Marriage, God says, is between one man and one woman period not between two people of the same gender not between two or more one man one woman forever and so yes it's a sin now this is a fairly recent phenomena where there will be one husband and two wives or uh, two husbands and one wife uh, it's just uh, it's just sexual immorality that's what it is and so it is sin um um tell your friend she needs to get right with God, she needs to get saved, um, is wrong. doesn't matter what the world says is right or wrong. The only thing that matters is what God says is right or wrong. You know, along these lines, I was reading a couple of, of um, news stories today briefly. Um, one, it was the celebration today is the first day of, of Pride Month in this country. It was uh, 2015 in June where um, our country sunk to a level lower than at any time in its history by um, giving the national blessing to same-sex marriages. Um, I read an article, the San Francisco Giants are the first major league baseball team that has come up with a pride uniform that they're going to wear at times this month. And I just keep thinking, Lord, how much farther can we fall? And then I read about the Fairness to Women Act, Women Athletes Act that Florida just passed, that prohibits biological males from competing with biological females in sporting events. Uh, Now, to most of us, that makes perfect sense. A biological male has physical advantages, strength and speed, size over women who are biological females. And, uh, and, and and the world is just now in an uproar over this. Uh, the NCAA is threatening to take away uh, championship events from Florida because of this. And I'm just thinking, wait a minute. The whole world can see this. And I think, how can we get so far away? And then I get a question about polyamorism. I hope I'm saying the word right. Somebody want to know if it's OK. Just because the world says something is OK doesn't mean it is. God gives us a guideline. He gives us rules. And it's our responsibility as Christians, especially, to follow those rules, but also to stand for the Lord, standing for righteousness in a world that's completely given over to these perversions. This is just horrible. You know, Patricia, and you didn't ask about this, but I'm a relatively short guy, and I... I ought to be able to say, well, you know, I identify as a seven-foot basketball player. And I demand that an NBA team signs me to a contract. But they would say, but you're not seven-foot tall. And you don't have any real basketball skills. I'd say, yeah, but that's my identity. And when we can laugh at that and say that's ridiculous, that's exactly what the world that we live in has come to now. And what we've got to do is we've got to decide once and for all on whose side we are in these things. And for all of you in the audience, these are the questions that are going to define who we are. Are We're going to be like Peter and deny the Lord. Or we're going to take a stand for him. Are we going to make him proud? Are we going to fight for what's right? instead of just letting the world around us completely overwhelm us. And that's what's happening. We're in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. That's from Isaiah chapter 5. We live in a time where people are lovers of themselves, haters of God. That's 2 Timothy chapter 3. We live in a time that's just absolutely insane and that's the way it is so Patricia I hope I answered your question and I know I went beyond that question well there's the music for the end of the first half hour your phones have been quiet we'd love your live calls and questions 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR this is the word to stand on for life I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas and we will be back in two minutes
0: welcome back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh
1: Welcome back to the program. We've got 30 minutes left for your calls and for your questions. Here is the first question of the second half from Nacho, from our email inbox. Uh, He says, I'm reading in the book of Judges, um, reading and studying the story of Samson. What stands out to me so far is the passages of chapter 13 about Samson's parents, especially his mother, Mrs. Manoa, and then in parentheses, as you refer to her, LOL. What caught my eye was her immediate response to Jesus' statement that even though barren, she was going to become a mother. Unlike Abraham's wife Sarah, who scoffed, she actually laughed, Nacho, uh, when told that she would have a child, Mrs. Manoah, though obviously barren, receives and believes what was said to her, and so does Manoah himself. Abraham believed it was considered to him as righteousness, would Samson's parents be considered in that same manner? They really took some steps of faith. Uh, Exactly, they would be considered like that. uh, When you believe the word of God, uh, receive the promise of yourself, then you're justified by faith. That's the way Old Testament saints were justified. It's the way those of us who live in New Testament times are justified, by believing. And uh, Mrs. Manoa, she had even greater faith than then her husband did, you know, he was all upset. Well, we've seen God, we're going to die. And she looks at him, and she says, would he have killed us if that's, if what he wants to do is tell us we're going to have this child. So, uh, yeah, exactly, Nacho. Um, they're great faith. Uh, they are wonderful heroes, biblically. Um, and, and even though their son turned out not to be so special, Um, He's in heaven. He made it to Hebrews chapter 11. So uh, their faith was passed through their parents. His faith was passed through, uh, through his parents. Good question. And by the way, Judges is, I think, my favorite Old Testament book to teach. The character studies are so rich and there's so much application, so much to learn that I love Judges. It's not as much fun to read as it is to teach. But it is a great book, even though it's a bleak time—the worst time in Israel's history, uh, save possibly the present time—and um, and it's just the character studies are priceless. Here is the next question from Amber: uh, According to First Peter three, is wearing jewelry a sin? No, Amber, that's not wearing jewelry is not a sin at all, and people that read it that way and. Probably have said it to you that well, First Peter three says you don't wear jewelry, or or makeup or anything. Um, they they they're they're not studying their Bible. Um, the idea is that beauty, real beauty, comes from the 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 unfading faith of a woman who loves God. This, of course, is the place where where uh, Peter says uh, you are her daughters, Sarah's daughters. Um, if you believe if 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 you have faith so um no wearing jewelry is not a sin wearing makeup is not a sin um having short hair for woman is not a sin um th- that's just a, a a bad exegesis of the passage of scripture so um wear the jewelry you want to wear wear the makeup you want to wear remember the, the the woman of god dresses modestly um but certainly Jewelry and makeup and other things uh, have no bearing on modesty whatsoever. So feel free. Uh, You're probably either being influenced by a a wildly Pentecostal church, very legalistic, um, and they, they just don't understand it. It's just bad Bible scholarship. Here's an interesting question from Theo. Theo, this is about the third time you've sent me a really interesting question. He says, Pastor, and how much should first century church fathers influence our view of communion? Um, Theo, I don't think they should influence our view of communion at all. Um, you look at the first century church, you can go through the book of Acts and through the epistles of Paul, and in the first century, those people that established churches, there was already false teachers flowing around, uh, floating around. There, there was already doctrinal division. Paul um, uh, rips the Galatians. Oh, foolish Galatians, he says. What's happened to you? You were running a good race. Who cut in on you? And he takes them to task. False teachers have been there from the beginning, and there's always been men like Simon the Sorcerer and and other Gnostics who viewed the gospel as an opportunity to get rich and to take advantage or manipulate other people. See, flesh was the same in the first century as it is in the 21st century. So that's 2,000 years, and our flesh is no better than it was. So what the first century church, now I'm accepting the apostles because the apostles' doctrine is a divinely inspired doctrine from from heaven. We know that from the Word. But um, what they said in the first century, the second century, the third, and the fourth century really means nothing to us. And if you look back and if you really study doctrine and church history, the founding fathers, uh, the, you know, uh, the, those who who some consider giants of our faith, they had aberrant views of lots and lots of doctrine. So... I'm sure they're in heaven. I'm sure their hearts were right, but I don't know why we look back at them like they knew something we didn't know. Now, the thinking goes like this. Well, they were the ones who were the closest to Jesus, so certainly the church would be more pure during their time than it is during our our time. There's, There's no indication of that. There's no historical record of that. It's just a big leap of logic, a leap of faith, badly placed faith, And it really doesn't say anything at all about their standards. Uh, There were founding fathers who disagreed on communion. Is it literally the body and the blood of Jesus? Some, yes. Some said, no, it's memorial. They all lived in the same time. They had disagreements, just like we have disagreements now. So why do we think that suddenly they were smarter than we are? I'm grateful for the early church fathers. I really am. I'm grateful for the blood of the martyrs that was shed, but for us to view them as somehow more spiritually in tune or smarter than we are, discounts the idea that flesh is the same 2,000 years apart. So Theo, communion, read your Bible, listen to the Apostle Paul, and he tells you exactly what communion is should be. Incidentally, Theo, I'm going to be teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on Sunday this week. And we're going to be talking about communion. And you know, our first Sunday of every month is Communion Sunday. So uh, I get to, to, to teach communion and then go right into uh, the partaking of communion with our church family. And and I, do, I love when the timing works out like that. Uh, but that's what we're going to be able to do. We know that communion is one of the two sacraments of the New Testament church. There's only two, baptism and communion. We know that because Jesus taught on both. The apostles and the early church in the book of Acts practiced both. And in the epistles there were instructions for both. Those are the only two sacraments that were codified in all three of those areas. So that's why we recognize only those two sacraments. So we know that it is to be done uh, with a grateful heart. We know that it's to be done with a heart that's right before God. We know that it's a a memorial view. People that say, no, it's literally the body and the blood— um, they, they again, they're not being honest in their scholarship. I, I, I know their hearts are right. I know they they view communion as somehow more sacred because they they believe it becomes the body and blood of Jesus. The reality is, it does not. It is a memorial. Jesus said, "Whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me." That's memorial. It can't be viewed any other way. So we got all these church traditions in the past all the way down from the 1st century church fathers and 2nd and 3rd century and 4th century church fathers as well. Um, the Bible didn't change. It was a memorial then and if they viewed it as literally the body and the blood of Christ then they were as in error as people are today uh, 20 centuries later. Thank you, Theo. Appreciate it. Three four zero ninety five eighty five were almost halfway through the second half hour and we no calls we'd love your calls laura says what is the difference between being convicted and feeling condemned um laura it's a huge difference sometimes the difference is a little hard to discern however being convicted by the holy spirit of sin is a wonderful thing paula just tickles me she'll say all the time i love conviction i love conviction Uh, I wish I was spiritual enough to say that. I don't love conviction because I don't like being wrong. But when I'm convicted, the Holy Spirit drives me to Jesus. I can run to him in repentance, knowing that my sin is going to be forgiven, knowing that my, my, my position with God is going to be restored completely. If you confess your sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive you and purify you of from all unrighteousness. So conviction tells us I can run to a gracious, forgiving, loving father. And the minute I do, the minute I confess, he says, okay, and he wipes the sin away. It's as far from me as east is from west. That's what conviction does. It drives me to Jesus condemnation, on the other hand, Romans 8.1, as you know, says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when we're feeling condemned, we know that that is from the devil. And usually when we're feeling condemned, we run from God instead of running to him. That's the easiest way to tell the difference. I don't feel like I can read the Bible because I'm just not holy enough. I I, I I, know I should go to church, but, you know, I just feel so out of place because I'm so wretched. Those are the kind of games that the enemy plays with us. And so we run from God instead of running to God. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. If you are being condemned, you know it because you feel so out of place. You feel like you can't go near God. He's holy and you're not. And that's just the enemy lying to you, Laura. So please, please, please. Um, Conviction drives you to God, comes from God, drives you to God. Condemnation comes from the devil and drives you away from God. And that ought to be pretty easy to discern that difference. Good question. Thank you very, very much. Here is an anonymous question. How far should grown married children go in submitting to their parents? Once you say, I do, grown married child of godly parents, I hope your parents are godly, um, then you're out from under their authority at all. Now, we still want to honor our parents. We certainly want to provide for them if they have need. We, we We want them to be in our lives. We love our parents but they no longer have any authority over you. Um, The two become one and they leave their parents. They cleave to God. And I think the time that we get married is the time that we say goodbye and step out from under the authority of our parents. Now, if you're asking this because your parents are saying, no, the Bible says that that you have to honor your parents, you do that by submitting to me, and that relationship, go to Genesis and show them That uh, when two become one Genesis chapter 2 when two become one uh, they leave their families and they start their own family that's what their parents are raising us for so uh, if you are a grown married child living in your parents home and sadly that happens a lot well then you're under the authority of their house rules and so too would be your spouse but only if you live in their home, you gotta follow their rules. It's that simple. But but under normal circumstances, you're out on your own. Again, you want to take care of your parents. You want to be there for them. Uh, you you certainly want the blessing of their presence in your lives. You want your your wife and your children, or your spouse and your children, to to enjoy the the relationship with with your parents. Um, but but you have no responsibility any longer to being obedient to your parents. It's time to go out and forge your own path. That's a great question. It's, it's also a great question when it comes to um, children as they grow up. They get out of high school or they get out of college and they stay at home and they don't leave. Um, you know, the natural order of things, the natural order of things is that we grow up and we go out on our own. One of our graduates this past week, and she happened to be our student body president, um, but she tickled me so much. She, uh, her, her dad is a teacher at school. Her mom is one of my favorite people in the whole world. I love them to death. She loves them. They have a wonderful relationship, parents and daughter. And yet she said, at her graduation night speech, she said, um, Mom, Dad, I know you understand this. I know you get this. But God told me it's time to go out on my own. She's not running from them. She's running to Jesus and actually in the process really growing up um, by accepting the responsibility that we all have as young adults. Good question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. We still got a little bit of time for calls. Here is a question submitted by Bruce. He says, Jesus taught that we must obey the commandments to be saved, and Paul said we are saved by grace. Is this a contradiction? No, not a contradiction at all. Um, Jesus taught that we must obey the commandments. He was talking especially uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he was saying just obeying the commandments isn't enough. You've got to be better than that. And his message was very Jewish. And what he was telling Jews who observed the law was that if you want to get to heaven, you got to be this good. So, yeah, you've got to obey everything. Um, and then Paul comes along and says, we're saved by grace through faith. And that, the faith, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God. Uh, That's a completely different covenant. It's a covenant that Jesus established in the upper room at the very first communion, what we call the Last Supper. He lifted the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood, thereby, Bruce, canceling the old covenant. So we're saved by faith, but that doesn't mean that we don't obey the commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And of the Ten Commandments, for example, um, all but one of them are repeated in the New Testament. So so certainly, yeah, we, we certainly want to observe the the Ten Commandments. We, we recognize their value. Certainly you can look at the Ten Commandments and the conclusion that we would all come to is, boy, this world wouldn't be in the mess it's in if everybody just acknowledged the Ten Commandments and obeyed them. But because we can't keep the commandments, Paul writes to the Galatians that the, 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 the law was a schoolmaster, sort of a taskmaster leading us to Christ in our hopelessness, because by observing the law, no one would be saved. So that should run us to Jesus, sort of, Jesus, help. I want to come to heaven, but I can't do it. Jesus said, believe. So no contradiction at all. What you've got is two completely different covenants. One in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfilled that covenant perfectly. Had he not fulfilled it perfectly, we would all be lost. He fulfilled it perfectly, and the result is that we have a new covenant. And that's a wonderful, glorious covenant called grace, God's unmerited favor to the infinitely ill-deserving. So, Bruce, no contradiction at all, but rather a fulfillment or a completing of the commandments. You'll even remember when the, the, the uh, teacher of the law cried out to Jesus, What is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus uh, said, uh, um, The greatest commandments love the Lord your God with all of your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second is like unto it or literally attached to it is to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus fulfilled that law. And now we're to fulfill that law by the power of the Spirit. Good question, Bruce. I like that one. Here is a question from Danielle. She says, a family member committed suicide. Can she still go to heaven? She was a Christian. Danielle, if she was a Christian, yes, she is in heaven suicide does not negate um, the forgiveness of sins that were given to her by grace through faith promised by Jesus I'm sorry for your loss um, the truth is and we've had some Christians a few over the years here commit suicide we've been here 26 years these things happen the enemy tries to devour his goal is to rob to kill to steal and destroy and Sometimes he's overwhelming. Uh, we humans sometimes get weak. We are overcome by evil at times. And the result, of course, is that um, um, some people lose the battle. But suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Suicide doesn't mean, as Catholic Church teaches, it's a mortal sin. Um, suicide does not mean that you're not going to be able to go into heaven. If you were, if, if you're family member was born again um, then she's going to be in heaven now there's going to be consequences she's going to be uh, certainly losing rewards and when she stands before Jesus or when she stood before Jesus she's going to recognize the gravity of her sin she's going to recognize how that grieved the, the Lord's heart it's going to be a very sad time but she's still going to get in If, in fact, she was born again. So there is your hope, um, your statement, she was a Christian. Uh, If that is true, it means that she is going to be in heaven. Sometimes the enemy wins. Sometimes we're overwhelmed. We're closer to our pain than we are to Jesus. And the enemy jumps in. Here's a question from Mike. In 1 Corinthians thirteen ten, what does it mean that the perfect will come? And how does that influence the teaching on spiritual gifts? Um, Mike, the perfect, uh, you know, depending on your, your perspective, uh, the perfect has been um, represented uh, to be the Word of God Um, that's actually a misrepresentation but when the perfect comes that's Jesus and Jesus has come he's perfect we're not but what he's saying because he's come we should operate in the gifts of the spirit with love now this is important I'm going to be teaching not this week but starting next week on the spiritual gifts we're going to be in first Corinthians chapter twelve, and you take those three chapters, and what Paul is doing is he's 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 scolding i mean he's rebuking the Corinthians for the carnal use of the gifts of the spirit, doing doing it with the wrong heart and um um when we're when we're doing that, then we're not operating in love. First Corinthians chapter thirteen is often called the love chapter. And rightly so. Um, it just means that, that, that our motive in moving in the gifts of the Spirit is not love. When we do it in an out-of-control order, when there's there's disorder in our church, it's when everybody's speaking in tongues at the same time or people are flopping around on the floor. That's not order. And, and they're not functioning according to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So what that means, it doesn't mean... That uh, those who would say as John MacArthur is an example he would say well when the perfect has come when this was written he didn't have the word of God but now we have the perfect pure word of God and and while he's true on that it doesn't mean the gifts have ceased because the perfect is Jesus we won't need to operate in spiritual gifts when we're in heaven with Jesus or when we're in the millennial reign with Jesus we'll be like Jesus our bodies will be glorified physical bodies like his And without a sin nature. So the perfect to come is Jesus. It's not the Word of God. And it doesn't indicate at all that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased to exist in the church. We are here at Calvary Chapel a charismatic church. But we are charismatic utilizing the boundaries that have been given to us especially in First Corinthians 12 and First Corinthians 14 so that we can be sure always that we're functioning in love. So, Mike, the perfect to come is not the Word. The perfect to come is Jesus. And uh, one day he'll be here, we'll be with him, and then um, we'll know the Holy Spirit personally instead of treating him like he is just a provider of these gifts that we can use any way we want to. No, can't do that at all. Good question, Mike. Thank you very, very much. Well, we are out of time today. Paula will be live in studio with me tomorrow on the date-day edition of the program. We would love your live calls and questions. I have no idea what Paula's going to talk about, but it's always interesting. Uh, Tonight, Isaiah, Isaiah, it's, what (laughs) am I saying? We're in chapter 47 of Genesis. See you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM, 6.30 the Word. Bye-bye.